Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your uh, co-host today, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, Jackie uh, Kettler and Jen Schneider. We're all from the School of Public Service at Boise State. We're going to be talking about some fun higher ed things today, because I know everybody's been waiting for that show all year long. <laughs> but I think Jen's got an announcement or Way two first. Way to sell it, Luke. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm great at that. Yeah, that little snippet of music you heard right there is the fabulous Nikki Lane. She's going to be playing the Knitting Factory on July 18th. Um, and give that record a listen on Spotify. It's fantastic. Uh, but if you are not into music, if you're the more, I don't know, intellectual word nerd type like some of us, you can also head over to Boise State for the One Sky event. Uh, this year's One Sky event is focused on leading from behind. It's in honor of um, Nelson Mandela. And it's from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in the lookout room in the sub. And we have some great panelists who are going to talk about uh, community leadership, private sector leadership, public sector leadership, uh, and how you can leverage collective genius for the common good. So two really nice options for July 18th. Put those in your calendar. Leveraging collective genius for the common good is what this show's all about. I mean, that's about. basically our motto. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what we're doing here on Radio Boise, <laughs> week in, week out. <laughs> Which is why we bring in guests. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we wanted to talk about higher ed for this week's show. I have been uh, involved in a reading group with the College of Arts and Sciences this summer about the challenges that are facing the higher ed system. And it's super timely. If you've been um, reading the news or watching the news, you've seen that the University of Alaska uh, system is in crisis this week. They're in danger of having major, major budget cuts um, in ways that I think some folks feel like could collapse um, many parts of that system. Well, right. So, I mean, what happened was the university or the university, the Alaska governor vetoed the some of the budget items, cutting, I think, up to like 40% of the university budget. Million. Yeah. Um, and I mean, when you have that big of a budget cut, like you're going to be cutting staff, faculty, student services, maybe closing down some campuses. That's a huge amount to cut. And um, the legislature, try, legislators tried to override the vetoes, but they didn't have enough, they didn't have enough legislators there. Some of the Republicans have <laughs> camped out in a different city, are not in the Capitol. And so they have failed to override those vetoes yeah they're gonna try again tomorrow but it looks rough and you know it's a huge deal for Alaska so they have their sort of four main campuses but then they also have eight or nine satellite campuses that serve in particular a lot of Native American indigenous folks and so if you shut down those satellite campuses it's not that easy to travel from one part of Alaska to another that means a whole lot of people are not gonna have access to higher education in that state yeah, I would say from a, a narrow perspective, we could say this is just a, another battle in the war on higher education. But I think from a broader perspective, which I hope we can get into in this show, is it's it's really a, a conversation or a discussion about the changing place of which higher education fits into our society. Because it's not really, because uh, I would argue, at least from the conservative perspective, it's just seeing uh, universities as fit to, uh, fitting in differently to our social society um, and our public institutions than what we did maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And so there's a lot of great aspects to higher education, but there's also a lot of challenges and a lot of, I guess, abuse.
abuses that go on. Um, and so it's really a difficult conversation. Um, and there's a lot of kind of balancing act. And I think really the, the biggest thing is what I've realized uh, kind of moving through my career um, and talking to people that I've known my entire life is unless you spend your life and career in the academy, you never really understand it. Um, I know people that still largely assume that my entire job is teaching. Um, and that's just not true. That is part of my job. It's an important part of my job, but it's not all we do. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that really is shaping some of this conversation. And I do want to note, like, the Alaska example is, like, a, you know, kind of an extreme example. But public funding for public universities has been decreasing in basically every state. Um, this is something where admit there are some public institutions that actually receive very little. Most of their budget is not coming from the state state funding. Well, and of course, like, when we look back over, say, decades, uh, the state funding to, to universities has dropped by, like, 40 or 50 percent, depending on the state. But even the last decade is dropped by like 10% in real dollars. So um, I would just go back to all the you know taxpayers like, oh, we're, we're taxpayer funding those universities. Well, well the truth is, no, you're not. Like uh, the, the state of Idaho pays a lot of money for Boise State, but most of Boise State's funding comes from tuition dollars and fundraisers. The state of Idaho doesn't really fund it as much as what it did 30 or 40 years ago when the majority of the budget came from the state. And I think that's an important conversation because whenever you start receiving those state funds, we have to make up those funds in other ways. And that's where you get you know, building booms, like how can we come up with other sources of revenue? As we'll talk about a little later, that's also where we start begging for money from private donors, um, which gains them a foothold in influencing things. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting challenges around this because ultimately like all of our society the challenge comes down to how how do we pay for things um and because with payment uh, with money comes accountability issues and people want what they want when they could give you money so now we have this really wicked problem i think where there have all been all of these cuts in state funding to higher ed and um educational institutions have tried to backfill that funding largely through tuition increases so taxpayers may not be paying through their taxes but if you have a kid going to college it's certainly coming out of your pocket or they're having to take out major student loans i think that's one of our challenges we're facing right now is that the average student loan debt in the united states is forty thousand dollars yeah and i think you know people are still paying for it right we're still as citizens paying for it. it's just now we're paying that for individually instead of collectively as much well and again uh you go back to you know those memes from the baby Mooners like, well, when I went to college, it was, you know, I graduated with no debt. Well, you're your tuition was largely subsidized for the state and it's not being subsidized by the state anymore and so students are paying the real cost of their higher education in more and more ways now so it's just more expensive but at the same time like we're also universities are also having to pay for all the amenities that they're adding into their uh, their schools so they can create alternative revenue sources but they can also attract students to pay those tuition dollars yeah it's led to a lot of excesses right i think the sort of symbol of these excesses is the floating river the lazy (laughs) river lazy river like the one at lsu (laughs) But I mean, again, uh, when you're looking at students are looking, they're going to take on $100,000 in debt. They're looking for an experience. That's what they're being attracted to Mm because our students are more mobile now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I I mean, again, I I think universities are becoming more like businesses than what they were 30 or 40 years ago. That's not necessarily a good thing, but it's a reality. Um, And that's what happens when we take away the public funds. Yeah, so I think it's a, that's a really important backdrop to understand when we're thinking about the other challenges that universities are facing. I think we could probably 
uh, rattle off a couple of other issues that we're facing. Something that you mentioned at the top of the show, Luke, was this fact that we a lot of us don't spend most of our time teaching anymore. A lot of us don't have teacher training. Some of us do. I think more likely at, at places like Boise State that have a strong teaching mission. We have a center for teaching and learning. But many people who teach in universities don't have um, teacher training. They may not be great teachers. And they're uh, spread in a lot of different directions. We have this hybrid university model where we're supposed to be really research engines. We're supposed to be amazing teaching universities. And then we're also supposed to have some sort of social mission, make sure that our students can find jobs, do workforce development. It's really hard to do all three of those things well, especially when budgets continue to be cut without raising those tuition dollars. Well, I mean, I I think you you hit on really the the biggest challenge. Nobody really understands what the purpose of a university is anymore. I mean, we go back historically and look to the Middle Ages when universities began to pop up as these academic communities, and I'm just training priests, right? Exactly. (laughs) Like that made sense, but like now in 2019, there's a lot of questions about what our purpose is, Um, and I think the the universities that are best run and the ones are the ones where you have strong leaders that have defined that mission in very clear ways. But a lot of universities, and, and again, I. I've said this to you before um, outside the show is the problem is that so many universities try to be Harvard, right? They try to copy those and learn those lessons. But the fact is like, there's a lot of regional universities and most higher ed is going on, not even places as, as big as Boise state. They're going on in small community college. They're going on these little liberal arts regional universities and they're trying to be Harvard. Um, and they're not really sure what their missions are, their functions in our society are. And I think that's where a lot of these challenges come to is we just don't understand universities anymore. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some of those who are angling with um, towards this problem with solutions of their own, and we'll discuss the pros and cons of some of those proposed solutions. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm David from Art Deco, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. Hey, you're listening to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise. My name is Jen Schneider, and I'm here with my co-hosts Luke Fowler and Jackie Kettler. We're talking about the crisis of higher education here in the United States. In the last segment, we talked uh, about uh, the University of Alaska system. Am I saying that right? That's a system, yeah. Um, And some of the crises they're facing this week um, with the governor threatening to to basically cut half of half of their funding. Um, so in this segment, we're going to talk about some of the uh, solutions that are being proposed to address the problems facing higher ed, and in particular, skyrocketing tuition costs, and then some of the inefficiencies that exist on our campuses, challenges to teaching, that sort of thing. So Luke, you know a little bit about this thing called per, um, performance-based budgeting, which a, a lot of universities are turning toward. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as a solution? Yes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to to, uh, give a shout out to our colleague Chris Birdsall who is one of the leading experts on this um, so everything I know is from him so if I get this wrong just blame Chris <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, uh, lots of states have jumped on this bandwagon, Texas, Florida, Georgia, uh, Indiana. There's a couple of other states that have done this. But essentially what it is is the state legislature comes up with a funding formula and then says, you know, number of graduates times X number of credit hours times something else equals how much money you get from the state. Wait, so is the idea like if graduation is what they want to see, graduation rates, yeah. you get more money if you graduate more students. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And if you have more students. If mm-hmm. you have more students, you get more money. If you're graduating more so it's all these quality uh, you know kind of measures um, and Boise State does something similar to this in Bronco budget 2.0 where funding going back to the colleges is based on the number of majors the credit hour production and all this type of stuff right so 
it, it, that makes sense, right? Let's tie these things yeah, to Yeah, sounds to good, like a market-based like, solution. Yeah, mm-hmm. a market-based. But there's some challenges here. One, um, m- almost all of this looks at student production, right? Which is a challenge in itself because does anybody know how we make the number of students enrolled go up? We take down the institutional barriers to enrollment, right? We just accept anybody. You have, or you have really large classes. Like, okay, oh, our classes are full. Well, let's just yeah. have gigantic ones. Yeah, let's just have a thousand students in in every section, right? Which is reduces our quality of education. Now, when we make graduation rates go up, we just graduate everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So there's ways to game that system that doesn't lead to better education, right, or better outcomes. Um, it also misses other things that we do, um, things like our research and. Uh, I know that my research is not read by a lot of people, but I will say that I produced some research that actually has the capacity to inform the public and improve things. Jen, uh, I will actually point to is you do a lot of things in the community. You work with these groups that is improving the Treasure Valley and the things that go on here. That's not built into the, any of that model, right? But then we have all the service and all this other stuff. So basically what I, I'm, I'm arguing is that when it comes to higher education, the outcomes that we're doing, we can't really measure easily. And so trying to build performance-based models around it does that. But it also creates these. And, and so while we create these incentives and these measurements, we create these kind of really perverse incentives that really incentivize us to do things that we don't really want to do, that don't really make a good that don't really make good higher ed. Well, and it's also based very much on teaching which you know just as you were saying we do a lot of other things and I think the role of the university in the community is more than just teaching classes and so that gets lost in that type of budget process. It seems to like it really relies on good leadership like I think the performance based budgeting works at a lot of universities because university good university presidents or provosts or deans are able to say look it matters how many students come in the door but they should be coming in the door because we have excellent programs. So if you have good leaders who are making sure they're communicating that, the, the system probably works. But if you have, you know, I guess the worst case scenario would be somebody who's just mostly a bean counter, then I think th- the risk of those perverse incentives rises quite a bit. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the success of performance-based budgeting really comes down to how it's understood within universities and how it's implemented um, and how it trickles down to faculty performance. Uh, and, and I'll say, uh, to, to his credit, uh, Corey Cook, our, our former dean and former co-host here, when Bronco Budget 2.0 came out, he set us all down and said, look, we're not going to win on this by trying to game the system, and we're not going to put a 1,000 students in classes. How we're going to do it is by producing the best classes on campus, and then students are going to flock to us, and we are going to grow because we are the best. That was brilliant, um, and so far that strategy has worked very well for us, but most people aren't going to do that because the low-hanging fruit is to have sections of 1,000 students and pay one instructor to teach that many students, right? That's how you actually win financially in the short term, I think it, it bites you in the ass in the long term, though. So that's an internal solution. I mean, I think um, what a lot of higher ed folks are thinking about are those who have external solutions, and in particular, Silicon Valley is coming on strong with multi-billion dollar investments in what we might think of as universities of everywhere, um, to use uh, one of those folks' terms. So this is the idea that people could basically enroll in private universities largely online-based, profit-based, um, but very, very accessible, move in and out quickly. So that's something that I think higher ed's going to be grappling with in the next 10 years. The other uh, thing that we have been thinking about is the hy- what you might think of as a hybrid model, a public-private partnership. Um, so 
I think we're going to um, talk a little bit more in the next uh, segment about some of the disadvantages of public-private partnerships. But what uh, this means is basically universities are partnering with companies or they're partnering with public sector organizations to design degrees, to design courses, um, I to think, fund and, buildings, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I think an example for Boise State would be the partnership with Micron, right? Yeah, perfect the, example. You know, like trying to get, um, you know, the, the program, material, material sciences. science. I'm like, I'm totally blanking. What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> like working with that program to help train them, to yeah. contribute and work for them, but they provide resources like funding for buildings and buildings and that type of thing. Often very tied to workforce development, mm-hmm. right? That sort of third leg of that stool that we talked about earlier. So research, teaching, and then workforce development. So I think we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dive into private-public partnerships a little bit. We have some positive examples, like the one with Micron. We also have some negative examples that have been in the news. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. Hello, this is Wooden Indian Burial Ground from Portland, Oregon. Oregon. You're, You're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 and, and 93.5 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Welcome back to the uh, Big Ten on Radio Boise, and uh, we're here today talking about higher ed and the challenges. Yeah, working in the academy. The challenges. Is, <laughs> the challenges of higher ed. Working in the academy uh, ruins your life, <laughs> but it's lots of fun. Uh, yeah. Come get a PhD at Boise State. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, in the last segment, we were talking about some of the solutions to the challenges in higher ed. And one of the things we talked about were public-private partnerships. And Jackie brought up the example of Boise State and Micron, who have a really nice symbiotic relationship. They're helping to fund our uh, material science uh, building on campus and helping to build those programs. A lot of our students go and work for Micron. So there's a sort of back and forth there. But we also have some examples of where public-private partnerships can go wrong and they've been in the news recently so Luke you were telling us about one in Alabama uh yeah so the uh, University of Alabama Law School got a 21 million dollar uh donation from a, a singer donor um largest in the history of the university uh which is really interesting it's not traditionally a public-private partnership he gave this money to grow the university and all this type of stuff where the conflicts came in was and if the university or the school administration would argue that he began meddling in university business um trying to dictate what faculty should be hired what their research interests should be um, decisions based on a lot of this type of stuff because again one of the challenges we open up is when we take money from a university as you can imagine like when you pay for something you give somebody 20 million dollars you you expect certain things to happen. Um, and so certainly in this case, the University of Alabama thought this person overstepped their reach. Uh, and one We of should the th- say that's not his version of yes. the story, right? Well, so his version of the story is the other side, which is to say um, he really pushed back on the abortion law in Alabama, uh, told students there not to support it and all of this. And the University of Alabama, that's when they said, we're returning your money. We don't have anything else to well, do. Well, and the governor who signed that very restrictive abortion law into, um, into law, she is on their board of trustees so it's very hard to know which way those politics were flowing right a lot of that's probably in the background and we'll never know what exactly happened yeah but i, I mean i think it, it really just highlights the politically charged environment which when you take a lot of money from an external partner they then want to drive the ship or they want to have some say in how it's done but when we're talking about a university and the academy and education are we then selling what we teach um, do it. I mean, to say, like, if we take a $50 million grant, can we not talk about abortion or gay marriage or any other controversial issue because our donors don't like it? And and this, these are some questions that have come up with the Koch brothers who have, you know, 
provided large endowments to some universities. These are the billionaires who own a lot of coal, coal yeah. industry, yeah. oil and gas. Um, and, and expanded into all sorts of other types mm-hmm. of industry as well over time. And, uh, you know, very much kind of part of that libertarian um, leaning and thinking and they've provided a lot of funding to some universities and connected that you know there's been questions about is that leading researchers to do certain types of research or have particular perspectives including now like students are saying we're only being taught particular types of thing you know like perspectives um, in the programs that are funded um, by the Koch brothers and of course the the universities or the centers and they're usually centers like for you know economic center studies centers or other things and they're arguing no you know we're not like this this we're not being directed on what we study so going into these questions where we don't from the outside it's kind of hard to know but th- that large of money does raise questions on how influential they are over what's happening on the ground i sort of have a little sounds strange as somebody who studies the oil and gas industry i have a little less concern about that model i think think that private donors all over the place can sponsor particular programs or particular hires or particular schools. That's probably within the pale of what's acceptable. We just haven't seen a lot of activists from the far right fund that. And so that makes the Koch brothers unique, I think. What I'm I'm more concerned about is what we might think of as influence peddling, which is along the lines of what you were talking about, Luke. So an example from University of Wyoming comes to mind, where a few years ago, there was an artist who put together an art installation on campus made out of um, beetle killed timber on campus, and he called it carbon sink. And that particular piece of art was meant to connect fossil fuels with climate change with beetle kill forests. Well, a lot of members of the uh, Wyoming Mining Association, a lot of coal companies and oil and gas companies threw a lot of flack to the university administration and said, hey, you can't take money from us and then critique us. And so the the art installation was taken down. That concerns me much more, where um, somebody who might uh, make major donations to either the legislature or to a university proper can then say what can't be taught. I find that much more problematic. Well, I mean, again, uh, the, the academy and this idea uh, of academic freedom, right, is that we're supposed to be able to bounce around ideas that- no matter how crazy they are, if we go through the academic rigor, we critique them, we question each other's logic. I mean, that's what we do as scholars. But to take that away is just very dangerous, right? I mean, it just halts this. I mean, to think that we can't question the use of carbon because they give a lot of money to the university, I mean, that's just dangerous and scary in a lot of ways. And I think this studying climate change is one area that's gotten wrapped up in some of this where there's been some pressure to maybe not you know, study it or not label it or be very cautious in reporting findings that are pretty strongly supporting that climate change is happening. So I think that's one area where that we've seen really get wrapped up in this. I think so much of it happens out of the public eye too. sort of phone calls to the university president or lunches with the provost or calls to the dean or whatever, how a lot of this influence gets peddled. And it's only when there's a particularly public case where like an art installation gets removed or in the case of Oklahoma with fracking connected to earthquakes there. You had a lot of reporters who were doing FOIA requests, and all of a sudden it became part of the public conversation. But I think in a lot of especially resource-rich states, this has been happening for decades, and it just has not been very visible. It's becoming more important as universities seek these sorts of partnerships Mm -hmm. to backfill these uh, budget holes. Yeah, that's where we start to have some, you know, when when research is coming with from 
particular donors, there does start to be some questions on, you know, are researchers actually free to to kind of explore or to you know to engage in that a- in that academic freedom well i mean again we'll, we'll link back and maybe this is a dramatic connection but link back to all the tobacco research that came out mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s before you know the 1990s and the, the the major you know lawsuits but i mean a lot of that was funded through the tobacco industry and research scientists at universities were funded to find a very specific conclusion um there's also some interesting cases uh with monsanto now mm-hmm. where they're funding people to find very specific things and if you don't find what they're looking for there's pushback and you get uh not well treated by that company but i mean there's tons of cases there right i mean if you imagine like and i was honestly i I would argue that's one of the biggest challenges of science today is that so many of our colleagues and brethren are selling their academic credentials to the highest bidder and that's one of the things that's undermined everything we've done but like these public private partnerships open the door to that at the university level there's also more pressure on on faculty members to have external funding so like if your career advancement depends on getting external external funding then you know then then you've got incentives to actually take it I think too it's connected to the um, issues we were discussing in the first segment where increasingly you have universities that are functioning like businesses Um, so foundations for example most universities have foundation offices that are in charge of getting these donations or creating these partnerships they're very separate from uh, faculty governance structures so I think faculty at a lot of these universities have been very up in arms about the business deals but those two parts of the university are increasingly separate and operate independently and that's really one of the challenges and and what i know from and i I think the school of public service is very interesting and special for the reason that faculty governance is engaged in the business part of this and i think a lot of our colleagues do know what's going on financially but that's not the norm most places Um, and i think as faculty get more and more frustrated they more and more disengage from that and then they just go okay we don't want to understand it that's just all bad Um, but there's like a large business mind I just remembered at a former university that I worked at there was this issue with enrollment going down uh, and there was this faculty member that stood up and goes you know what enrollment's going down we should fire the VP of enrollment because he's doing a terrible job and I was like well if you fire the VP of enrollment the person who's in charge of growing enrollment and bringing and recruiting students aren't enrollment just going to go down further? Like, think about the argument you're making, right? And so as you get that disconnect, universities just get in a worse and worse position. Um, And so there's just this big challenge of trying to get faculty involved in business, but business also trying to understand faculty. Yeah, and I'm just going to reiterate that there's a lot of really smart, innovative people in Silicon Valley who are eyeing all of this as an opportunity and chance to come in and disrupt the system. So I think we're going to be having this conversation again. I think it affects all of us, those who are in the academy and those who aren't. Thanks for tuning in today while we talk a little bit about the what's going on with universities today and think about the future. Uh, this is The Big Tent here on Radio Boise. We'll see you next Thursday.